My name is uh, Aaron Loomis. Uh, this is my esteemed colleague and friend, Malik Pale. Um, and uh, we're going to be reading our scripture for, for this morning. So um, uh, our scripture reading today is from Psalms 103 and Micah 6. Uh, let us stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, Psalm 103, 8 through 14. Uh, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Micah 6, 6 to 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, you may be seated. Well, this uh, Sunday, uh, Malik and I are very excited and uh, others as well, I'm sure, because we have a special guest with us, um, Dr. Barry Corey, um, who is uh, just a wonderful individual and has a great uh, sermon planned for us today, but a little background on him. Um, he has uh, written a book recently. Uh, the book is titled uh, Love Kindness, and uh, it is a book in which he compels the Christian community to take a closer look at God's admonition in Micah 6.8, um, to love kindness. Um, his book talks about personal experiences and life lessons, and uh, he's going to be sharing with us some of that uh, today. Um, but uh, a little bit about him as well. Um, Dr. Corey was born and raised uh, in Massachusetts, which uh, makes him a Boston Red Sox fan, which I confirmed earlier. So, yeah, I'm not sure how they're doing in the playoff run right now. I should check that earlier. But so um, he graduated from Evangel University in Boston uh, with a degree in biblical studies in English. Um, he also has a PhD and a master's uh, from uh, Gordon, uh, sorry, from Boston College. Uh, he served as the president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and uh, he also, uh, prior to his PhD, served in uh, Bangladesh um, for a few years um, with the Bangladesh Rural Advancement Committee. Uh, but uh, his big change came later in life, and that was what? In uh, 2007, Dr. Corey received that most sacred calling and profound responsibility of being the president of a bastion of Christian education in our community. A city on a hill and a producer of difference makers for the kingdom for over a hundred years. Often referred to as the Lord's University. Uh, a title which other schools north of Covina aspire to as well with uh, limited success. Let's give a warm Lake Avenue Church welcome to the president of Biola University, Dr. Barry Corey and his wife Paula. Um, thank you for that, Aaron and Malik. Um, 
I'll let the uh, record show that I was never the president of Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, and one of the former trustees, Roland Hines, is here uh, to verify that. So um, that was probably my fault and somewhere along, along the way. But it's, uh, it is great. It's great to be here. Uh, my wife, Paula, is back there. Um, so, Paula, good to have you here today as well. Welcome. Stand up so you can uh, say hello. Uh, so, um, there are amazing speakers that come and uh, stand on this podium and, and speak from this pulpit, but uh, uh, they'll be far better speakers than I am, but no one more, more grateful uh, th- than I am. And the reason is because of a Greg Waybright. Uh, Greg Waybright has been, f- for me, just a beloved uh, brother. I, I love Greg, and, and I'm praying for him, as many of you are as well. Just an amazing uh, a leader and shepherd of this church. Uh, when Paul and I moved here with our three kids 10 years ago from Boston, Massachusetts to Southern California, our kids were 8, 11, and 14. And uh, I, I, because Greg had been uh, a college president before out in Chicago, I would not infrequently call him and get together with him like Nicodemus at night and to get some counsel on some of the things that I was kind of struggling through. And 10 years later, I am a better person because of his wisdom and, and leadership over and over again. And I know ben, many of you are the beneficiaries of his loving counsel uh, as well here at, at Lake Ave. So it was great. it's been great to get to know uh, Chris and Greg, the Waybrights. And we've got another other folks here, certainly the Heinzes, uh, Hornburgers, the Krolls. I should probably stop there. It sounds like I'm name dropping now. Colin Powell once told me never to be a name dropper. So I've been spending my time in recent years observing the rising generation. So these 6,000 or so students at Bible University who are Jesus followers, you know, really deep down committed more to making a difference and making a name for themselves. And I'm, I'm watching them kind of juxtaposed against the, the culture and how, how will they live, in the words of C.S. Lewis, as that's Francis Schaeffer, but C.S. Lewis calls them little Christs in a world that has increasingly sharp elbows and sharp tones and sharp tongues and, and kind of vitriol and rancor and a shrillness that, that seems to be defining not just kind of the broader culture, but even particularly in, in, in politics and in the media, in universities, even in the church. If I, if I could condense it down to one bumper sticker, I would, I would stick on the back of my car a simple sticker that says, Firm Center. Soft edges. And by firm center, I mean this like this abiding commitment to the the truth of God's word and the the orthodox faith that has been passed down through us for the through the millennia. And by the by by firm center, I mean this this commitment to the hope of the gospel that Jesus indeed saves the great truths, the doctrines of our faith. That's what I mean by firm center, but by soft edges. I mean that maybe we need to think about leaning more into beginning with listening and with hospitality and with humility and with kindness. And our our watching world needs to see more and more in us this sense that Christians are living out this profound biblical kindness. And as you scour the scripture, you see kindness through and through. And often it's, it's tucked away in these obscure stories that we sometimes overlook. Take David. You know, David, the, uh, 
the, the sharpshooter, the slayer of Goliath, the one who killed the bear, David, the one who mustered the armies against the Philistines, you know, David, the, the, the one who could play the harp and, and write poetry. He was like, like, he was like the Dosecchi's man. Of the, I don't know if I'm supposed to say that, but he, he, was, he could do it. Like, and if you go to Florence, you see David, this like incredible statue of him. There's like, there's so much about David that is like, like, like bigger than life. But an often missed virtue in David is, is his kindness. His kindness that points towards the grace of God. It's not his public leadership. It's not his bravery or political oratory skills or even those epic poems that he wrote. But this virtue of David that's often overlooked is that, that tender and, and extraordinary grace-shaped kindness. You remember before David was king. You know, Saul was his predecessor, and, and, and Saul saw young David as a threat, and so Saul hotly pursued him. He wanted to hunt him down and kill him, and saw, saw, um, saw his, his own armies just kind of mobilized to chase David down. And, and, and Saul, he would rage with envy every time he heard that little ditty being sung by the Israelites, Saul has killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. And Saul, this kind of ego-driven, insecure, power-thirsty leader, he created this wall between David and himself, and he had this like paranoid sense of passive aggression, flattering David one moment and then publicly smearing him the next. It's a crazy relationship, and certainly David often lived in fear. Of Saul. Eventually, Saul was, was dethroned. David stepped into the dynasty as the new king of Israel. And back in the day, when new dynasties stepped into place, at a minimum, they would completely ignore anyone from the previous regime. But at worst, they would seek to wipe them out. So if anybody should be afraid, it was this little boy with a long name. His name was Mephibosheth. It has three H's in it. Never name your kids' names with three H's in it, okay? That's Mephibosheth, this boy. He's the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul. Jonathan was David's friend. Saul was David's nemesis. And he was the only survivor of Saul's family. So, so, so Jonathan's dead, Saul's dead, and Mephibosheth, this, this little boy who was crippled, lame in both feet, the scriptures say, Listen to the story, this tender story from 2 Samuel, the end of chapter 8, beginning of chapter 9. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. And one day David asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? Ziba, who was a steward of King Saul, answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from the house of Machir. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, the lame boy replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog 
like me. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to form the la- farm the land for this crippled boy and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. You get the story, right? This grandson of David, excuse me, the grandson of Saul, this, this boy who was lame in both feet, living in fear of this new King David. But, but David, who had actually once written a psalm that said these words, how precious is your loving kindness, O God, decides he's going to live out that kindness that God had shown to him. And he does so by asking that pointed question, is there no one still left in the house of Saul, my enemy, to whom I can show God's kindness? So the servants set out. They, I don't know, they, it looks like they were about 100 miles away. They found this little boy huddled in this house, and they said, the king wants to see you. So they took this boy, I don't know, 8, 9, 10 years old, to the palace where David was and brought him in the courts of the king. And I don't know if that boy limped in or he went in on crutches or he was carried in, but he stood there crookedly before the king with his palsied feet and the king looked at him and this is what he said. He said, don't be afraid. Well, he had every reason to be afraid. I mean, he was, he's an orphan. His grandfather was the one who sought to kill David. He was a boy. He was disabled. I mean, he had a name Mephibosheth. That's, I mean, that's just like, yeah, right? But, this, but the, the scene is deeply moving as this boy is brought in before the king. And the king said, don't be afraid, Mephibosheth, because you know what? You're going to always eat at my table. And it didn't make sense to this child. He stood there stunned before David, feeling utterly worthless. And he says to the king, he says, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? How does David reply in verse 11? He says, I want you to eat at my table like you were one of my own sons. You know, David had every right to open up his table to the people of power as leaders do. The wealthy the influential, the nobles, at least his immediate family, right? But he showed kindness to the least likely, the grandson of his enemy, a parentless boy in hiding whose feet were palsied. And this kind king invited this disabled boy to sit at the table, not just for one meal, but for every meal, every day, month after month, year after year. If you fast forward to the end of the story in verse 13, it says that Mephibosheth lived his life in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet, underscoring again how filled with grace David was in that life of kindness. And this is grace, right? This feeble, fearful boy receiving what he did not expect and what he did not deserve. And when David showed him that kind of kindness, it was simply an extension of the grace of God that was shown to him. 
The Hebrew word is chesed. It's kind of hard to translate, but inadequately it means this out-of-the-box, relentless, unconditional, sacrificial, gushingly generous, God, grace, others-exalting kindness that we live And I don't know what happened when David died. This is a marginal reading. But perhaps when he went to heaven, he began to rattle off some of the things that he had done. God, you remember that I slew Goliath with one stone in the name of the Lord. God, do you remember how I killed that bear to protect the sheep? God, do you remember how I mobilized the armies against the enemies of the the Philistine? God, do you remember that poetry that I wrote that they're going to be reading at Lake Ave Church thousands of years from now. This is what I did. Do you? Re-? And then God says, you know what, David? This is what I remember. I remember there's an orphan boy who was hiding in fear for his life. And you invited him with his crippled legs to put them under your table and eat with you like he was one of your own sons often think that what God remembers is not necessarily what we think he might. What does it mean to live kindly like that? You know, kindness is kind of this weird thing. It's, we always think it's a good thing to be kind, and it's, you know, we're kind to the barista, right, when she gets our latte right. You know, thank you for that. We're kind within our families when there's harmony. We're kind when we're in these protective little echo chambers where we're with people that we know and we're comfortable with, but it's tougher road when we live in tension in our families, with our neighbors, our colleagues. Kindness is a tougher road when we're engaging with those with whom we deeply disagree. And I, I don't use the word kindness as a synonym of niceness. Niceness is limp. Kindness is powerful. We need to stop telling our kids to be nice and start telling them to be kind and then tell them the difference between the two. You scour the scriptures, you don't find the word niceness there once, nor the word nice for that matter, but kindness is there throughout Old Testament, New Testament. It is this virtue that is rooted in scripture. It's been forged on sound Christian theology and it's been modeled by faithful followers of Jesus for centuries now. But unfortunately, I think we don't default to this biblical kindness in our lives and often we think that this is a virtue that doesn't matter anymore, but it does matter. And kindness is not the thing we do. Kindness is the way we live. We don't just do kindness in some Nike-esque kind of way. We love kindness. So when the people talked to Micah and he said, with what shall I come before the Lord? The answer was simply this from the words of the Lord. He said, you do justice and you love kindness. It actually means you love kindness and you walk humbly with your God. To love kindness seems like it's the easiest of those three, the justice, the humility, and the kindness. But kindness isn't easy, especially among those that we've ignored or avoided or judged or condemned or looked down upon. Kindness is easy. To those we like, it costs us very little. Jesus gets at this right in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have heard that it said you love your neighbor, but I say you love your enemy and you pray for those who persecute you. And he gives you two different groups of people in your world, your neighbor and your enemy. 
those who you're in community with, and your enemy not being those you might be combative with, but those who are not in your community. And sometimes when we think about what Jesus says, you love your enemy and you pray for those who make life miserable for you, sometimes we do one or the other so that our love is prayerless or our prayer is loveless. And when our love is prayerless, sometimes we can form relationships, but we don't pray that the transforming work of the gospel begins to take its shape so some people can see the grace of God in their lives. This is prayerless love, and this is how too many of us have been and where I am even more guilty, and that is of loveless prayer. Where I think about that love your enemy thing, and I think I'm going to pray from a distance with those who are different, especially those who believe differently than I do. But Jesus says loving your enemies demands proximity with them building bridges and not building walls. You love your enemies and you pray for those who make life difficult for you and you don't get to pick which verb. In that sense, kindness is not so much a random act as it is a radical life. We love the random acts, right? We do that. We take our neighbor's trash out. We buy dessert in a restaurant for some random person at a table next door. We you know, tell somebody she has food in her teeth. Whatever it is that you, you know, do that are these random acts of kindness. And, but the Bible calls us to something much more and much deeper than that. And I like the random act thing. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I would prefer that to the radical life. I mean, I, I, I'll, stop, I'll stop a student, for instance, like walking down the hall at Biola and I'll give them a high five, give them a hug, and then kind of move on and, and, and forget about it, regardless of how they're doing. I... I saw a recent Facebook posting after one of those uh, encounters. It said something like this. It said, today, DBC president of Biola put his hand on my shoulder, looked me in the eyes, and asked me, how am I doing? He smelled like flowers, though. This dog's aroma made me feel like, dang, I'm going to be okay. I'm struggling, but I can do it. Just saying. (laughs) What is he just saying? Somebody under the age of 27, please interpret that for me. He smelled like flowers. This dog's aroma. I'm not sure like what, what he meant. Wow. Dang, I'm going to be okay. So pardon the spelling from our Biola students. But when I grew up, I had a front row seat to kindness. I watched my father, who was a small frame Pentecostal preacher, who had this incredible ability to like, like relentlessly like express Christ's love to them regardless of who they were or regardless of where we were. And I remember I, 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 when my father was getting gas in the car, he'd get out of the car and he'd hug the Islamic gas station attendant and I would slink down in the back seat of that Pontiac Bonneville wishing he wouldn't do that. I remember going to the cobbler and this Armenian cobbler my father would be talking to and he'd say, hey, can I pray with you? And They'd reach across that counter stained with shoe polish and they'd clasp hands. My father would begin to pray and I'd be at the door praying that no one would come in to catch them in the act of talking to God. I was mortified that my father would do this. I remember Reuben, the Jewish furniture merchant in Worcester, Massachusetts where my father would buy office stuff and my father one day just had this unction in him to go up to Reuben And he went up to Reuben and he held Reuben's face in his hands and he looked him in the eyes and he said, Reuben, 
I love you. Reuben just froze and I froze and I wanted to run out of the store and wish it would all go away. I remember these times when those gestures of like, like, Jesus-shaped affinity that my father would show would end up with him getting whatever, a cold shoulder or a rude comment or the middle finger when he was rejected, and, but he didn't notice. But I remember as a boy that I felt the rejection for him that he ne- never seemed to realize for himself because he wasn't doing this to be thanked. He was doing this to be obedient. And one day... Years later, I was living this one year in Bangladesh doing some research, working among mostly Muslims and Hindus. And, and uh, when I was there, my father came for a few days to visit on a missionary trip he was on. And we just spent a few days together. And one particular morning, I remember we were walking in the neighborhoods of where I live, these crowded, fetid streets of Dhaka, the capital, with rickshaws and beggars and, and noise and squalor and trash. And as we walked and I was trying to figure things out, my father said, you know, there's this verse in Matthew chapter 10 that I can't seem to get my mind off of. He said, it's right after Jesus does that thing with his disciples about if you want to be my disciple, you pick up your cross and you, you follow me. But he said, immediately after that, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And my father, who never graduated from Bible college and he's trying to figure all this out, he said, I don't fully understand what Jesus meant when he said that to his disciples, but this I do know, that whoever God puts in my path, I need to make myself receivable to that person. For how will they ever receive the love of Christ? How will they ever receive the grace of God unless they receive me first? And then bam, it all came back. It was as if my life flashed before my eyes. I remember him hugging the Islamic gas station attendant, praying over the the counter with that Armenian cobbler and holding Reuben's face in his hand and saying, Reuben, I love you, that my father wasn't being weird. He was being receivable. And then my father went on to say, I don't know anywhere where Jesus says you're going to be received. He said, the objective of my life is not to be received, it's to make myself receivable. And sometimes when we live out those acts of biblically shaped kindness, we're not thanked. We're given the stiff arm or the silent treatment. People walk away, we give up because we're not appreciated. But we don't live that way in order to be thanked. We live that way in order to be obedient. When that student bumped into me on the sidewalk and he said, you know, this dog's aroma smells like flowers, though, it actually reminded me of what Paul says about us. He says, you are the aroma of Christ. To some, you're the smell of life. To others, you're the smell of death. But you've got to keep on smelling like Jesus. Some will accept that smell and some will reject that smell. But keep on giving out that Jesus-like fragrance because kindness is on the short list of Paul's fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, not a gift that we can opt in or opt out of. This is a fruit. This is something that we must give. That means when you inhale the Holy Spirit, you exhale kindness in how you live. Some of you remember last year, a bill was introduced in Sacramento. Those of you who are following what's happening and Faith-based colleges and universities in the state probably know it well. There's several bills actually that were introduced by the California, members of the California Gay Caucus toward Christian colleges and universities in our state over sexual ethics on our campuses. 
And we rallied together places like Azusa Pacific Biola and many others to, to say, you know, this isn't right, this is unjust. And we spoke out and you know, expressed our concern. And eventually the bill passed in its final stages. A lot of the teeth were pulled out of it, it became less, uh, less severe. But we were told that harsher and more frequent bills were going to be coming posed at those colleges that have policies that are not aligned with the changing culture and with the political landscape. Then something unusual happened. I got a text message from a friend that goes to Lake Ave Church in Pasadena. The next day I was planning on being Sacramento. He didn't know that. He said, if you're ever in Sacramento, um, there's some lawmakers up there I'd like you to meet. Then he mentions who they are, and I text him back, and I said, well... This one is not going to meet with me because, in my mind, he has been public enemy number one. He's the most outspoken opponent of Christian colleges. He's a California politician. He's chair of the California Gay Caucus. He's a strong supporter of this bill. He won't meet with me. Friend texts me back. He's meeting with you at 4.30 tomorrow. (laughs) So I go up to Sacramento. I have a bunch of meetings that day, and at the end of the day, I know where I'm going. I'm going into this meeting. And I walked in there, we met, we had about a 30-minute conversation, and it was very cordial. Um, and and, I, and I, at the end of the conversation, I said, would you, would you ever come to Biola? He said, I've never been on a Christian college before, I don't know. He said, you know what, I'll come. So three months later, he came, early November 2016. He came and he spent four hours on our campus, met with students, met with some faculty, met with some uh, administrators, and... Uh, And then he and I that night, as well as uh, your parishioner from Lake Ave Church at at that parishioner's house, we met for four hours. We had a conversation. And instead of leading with our best arguments about why our perspectives were right, we took a chance on starting with civility and kindness. We took a chance on starting by talking across a table rather than shouting across a street. A few months later, he and I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post. The headline was, we first battled over LGBT and religious rights. Here's how we became friends. And I know there are like deep differences that I have on important issues. But I've also heard from Assemblymember Lowe ways that I can lead Biola better. Because one dimension of kindness is exercising the discipline of listening. Listening while wanting to learn rather than listening while waiting to respond. And there's a difference. And I honestly don't know how this is all going to end up. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I work in a nonprofit organization. I stole that line from my old boss, as you know. But my hope and my prayer is that Christians will be seen first as gracious in our spirits, well, solid on our convictions, known more for what we are for than what we are against. My hope is for people of faith to be known to love their enemies and to pray for those who make life difficult for them. My hope is that the people of God will say, love demands proximity. I'm willing to get out of my comfortable sphere and form a relationship with someone who believes or looks or sounds or acts far differently than I do. My hope that people of faith will even open up their lives and even their supper tables to those who are unlikely dinner guests. Greatest influence lies ahead, church. 
as you walk the way of Christ-shaped kindness in an increasingly fragmented and skeptical society, if ever our world needs to see something in us, it's that we begin to lean into this way of living. In Lake Ave, you're doing it. I mean, I know about this church. I know the work you're doing on racial reconciliation. I know the work you're doing on juvenile halls and what you're doing with tutoring kids and helping um, your urban moms. I know what you're doing in the Great Commission work that you're doing on missions. But this is our challenge, living from this biblically-centered core that spills out and there's this life of hospitality and kindness and winsomeness and listening and humility. It's a firm center Soft edges, posture that I talked to students about at Biola University. Jesus came, says, full of truth, firm center, and full of grace, soft edges. He didn't come half with each. He came full of both. Likewise, we are to be that way. Brian Loritz, a dear friend, a Biola Talbot grad and one of your own, told me when I was talking to him about this idea, he said, we've tried legalism, and that has proven inept and unattractive. Some are trying a warped form of love that renders us saltless. The only thing that works is a life that embodies grace and truth lived out in relationship with others. Gabriel and worship folks, come up here and start playing something spiritual. I'm going to land this plane right in a few minutes now. I believe more than ever that Christians need to be known not for our random acts, but for our radical life this counter-cultural way of living that defies expectations and undoes some of the stereotypes about us. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, after Paul has this little rant about not being judgmental Christians, he says this words that God's kindness through you leads to repentance. And sometimes we, we don't think that way. We think that it's, it's our judgment or our ranting that leads to repentance, but it's not. It's God's kindness that leads to repentance. And that the verdict for you should not be whether or not that kindness that you live is accepted because sometimes your kindness is going to be accepted and sometimes your kindness is going to be rejected. But I can guarantee you that your kindness will never be forgotten because it plants a deep seed in the life of somebody that may bear fruit years later when you never even see it. We cannot love well with a bullhorn Holy Spirit breathed kindness has more power to change people than we can imagine. It can break down these seemingly impenetrable walls. It's at the heart of racial reconciliation. It can restore relationships that have long thought to be unsalvageable. It will empower servant leaders to break stalemates. It can bring nations together. But most of all, it can lead people to Jesus is why we radically live this way. Don't sell kindness short. A.J. Gordon, the great Boston pastor of the 19th century, said that our task is not to bring all the world to Christ. Our task is to bring Christ to all the world. That means kindness calls us off the soapboxes and into the cities and into the neighborhoods and into those different places that may be risky and countercultural and uncomfortable for us, but it's in those places where we make ourselves receivable, living that exhortation of Christ who said, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And we live this way, a grace-filled life, because we have received it first. 
that we have been changed by grace because this thing about kindness we live is ultimately about the kindness that we have received by God's grace. And in that sense, right, we're all the Mephibosheths. We're the crippled ones standing unworthy before the king, broken with twistedness in our lives. And David says, Mephibosheth, you come and you eat at my table like one of my sons and you can do this every single day for the rest of your life. And Jesus said, as often as you break this bread, you drink this cup, you remember the, the table that you're sitting at now, which is a reminder of my grace for you. The cross is the most shocking symbol of kindness, the place where the kindest act in human history ever occurred. And we often think of the cross as this cruel and rugged and bloody and dark image, but the cross is ultimately and eternally kind because it is a place of grace's most profound moment. It is a place where we were received despite our past and our baggage and our shortcomings and our fears. And we are the ones who hear the words of the king to come as daughters and sons, to sit at the table as undeserving as we are. And maybe this is all you need to hear today, that you're welcomed by grace at the table. And if you've already been welcomed by grace at the table and you're sitting there, then Jesus calls us to go and do likewise. We live lives of profound kindness because of the kindness of God through Christ to an undeserving us. Jesus said, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. He never said you're going to be received, but he said you need to make yourself receivable in everything that you do, as awkward as it might be, and as risky and countercultural as it is, you live that way, for you are the aroma of Christ. So therefore, as God's chosen people redeemed by his grace, Lord, your word exhorts us, holy and dearly loved, to clothe ourselves with kindness. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.